Hello and welcome to the February 2021 edition of Aeon's Retirement Market Update podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Ricky Marsh, and after a short break for Christmas, I'm back again with episode 24. If this was the TV series 24, this would be the episode where, after a long and stressful day with no food or toilet breaks, everyone at CTU realises Jack Bauer was actually right all along. The main bad guy gets defeated, and all the plot threads from the previous 23 episodes get tied up in a neat little bow. I guess our main bad guy is clearly COVID-19, so sadly we can't claim victory there just yet. But I can report that one of the key plot threads from the first 23 episodes of this podcast has reached some kind of conclusion. Yes, the pension scheme's bill has finally been agreed by Parliament. To mark this occasion, Matthew Arends and Ahmed Ali will be joining me to talk about what's in the new pension schemes act and what it means in practice for the world of pensions. Before we do that, here's a roundup of the latest pensions news. A couple of quick updates on the Pension Protection Fund just to kick off the new year. So back in November, I told you about the draft levy determination for the 21-22 levy, which will be payable later this year. On the 26th of January, the PPF published the final levy determination. This was largely unchanged from the draft, but there are a couple of small changes that may affect some schemes. One of these relates to contingent assets. The standard form agreements have been updated due to Brexit and these new ones should be used for any new contingent assets, although existing contingent assets don't need to be amended. There's also a change to the process for submitting new contingent asset documents to the PPF. This should now be done electronically rather than sending a hard copy. The other change relates to insolvency risk scores. The PPF and Dun & Bradstreet have fixed some inconsistencies in the scoring approach that may mean some employers move to a different levy band. We're assured that this only affects a small number of schemes and the PPF will contact all schemes where this makes more than a marginal difference. I'm sure you'll already be aware that the Brexit transition period came to an end on the 31st of December. The PPF's published a statement on the impact of Brexit which confirms that pension schemes based in the UK will still be protected by the PPF even if the employer is based in the EU. The statement advises that where an EU-based sponsoring employer is at risk, trustees should discuss the steps for entering the PPF in advance with their legal advisors. You'll also no doubt have seen that a trade deal was agreed between the UK and the EU just before the end of the transition period. What you may be more surprised to learn is that the deal is not just about fish. I've trawled through all 1,246 pages of the main trade and cooperation agreement, and the word fish does appear 368 times, but the word pension gets 400 mentions. There's not really anything new in there for pensions, but it's worth keeping an eye on data security. The deal includes an interim provision for transmission of personal data from the EU to the UK for a period of up to six months, but we're still waiting for the EU to assess whether the UK's data protection regime is adequate for a longer term agreement. Back in September, the DWP set up a new industry working group tasked with identifying options to tackle the growth of small deferred DC pension pots. This is really a bit of a side effect from auto-enrolment, and some actions were taken during the initial design of the AAE framework to mitigate this. But the number of small pots has still grown, and this creates risks for members, including erosion of pots under certain charging structures, losing track of their pension savings, and general costs and inefficiencies in the system. The Small Pots Working Group has now published its first report, which recommends, among other things, exploring opportunities for member-initiated consolidations, enabling automatic and automated transfers and consolidation, and steering providers towards consolidating multiple pots that they hold for their same member. The report sets out areas for further research and concludes with a suggested roadmap for delivering change over a four-year timescale. The government's currently considering the group's recommendations. 
And finally, it's nearly pensions conference time. This year, we're going fully virtual for obvious reasons, but the team have been working hard to make this as close as they can to the in-person experience. So as well as presentations from Aon specialists and other guest speakers, we'll also have breakout rooms where you can discuss the content with other delegates. We're running the conference on mornings over the course of a whole week, starting on Monday the 22nd of March. And the overall theme is Reflect, Reset, Replan. Each morning we'll be running three or four sessions on a range of topics, followed by a virtual networking session. There's a lot more detail on the schedule and how to register on our conference website, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And if you'd like more information on this or any of this month's other news stories, I'll include contact details at the end. Okay, I'm going to be a little bit self-indulgent now and quote from a magazine article I wrote just over two years ago. The pensions minister has recently stated his belief that a substantial pensions bill would be delivered in summer 2019, leading to a new pensions act in 2020. It may have taken a bit longer than expected, Brexit, election, Covid, you know, but at the time of recording, Parliament has agreed the pension schemes bill and by the time you hear this, the Queen may well have waved her magic wand to turn it into a new pension schemes act. New pensions acts don't come around that often, so this is quite a material thing for the pensions industry. And this one covers five main topics that are relevant for both DC and DB schemes. To talk about this in a bit more detail, I'm joined by Matthew Ahrens, who's our Head of UK Retirement Policy, and Ahmed Ali, who's one of our Responsible Investment Specialists. Before we start, Matthew will kill me if I don't say, none of us are lawyers, so anything we say here is just our layman's view of the Act. So Matthew, I just wanted to start with you on collective DC schemes, as these appear first in the Act, and they take up just, just under half of the total page count. What is CDC? Well, Ricky, one way I would describe it is that, in my view, it is the single most significant change in UK pensions in decades. Now, we've talked about this in our previous video, as a matter of fact, and hopefully you will have included a link to that along with this podcast. But in simple terms, Collective DC is a fundamentally new type of pension design that ensures an income for life for DC savers without them having to buy an annuity. Now, why do I think that's important? Well, let's think about a typical DC saver at retirement. They've got two main choices. Either they buy an annuity, which is guaranteed, so expensive to buy, or they will invest in income drawdown, but then they're exposed to their own personal longevity risk. And what I mean is, if they die earlier than their average life expectancy, for example, they will tend to underspend in their retirement uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Conversely, if they die later than their average life expectancy, the saver is going to run out of money. So, and either outcome there isn't particularly great for that individual. Collective DC provides is a third route that sits somewhere between uh, annuity and income drawdown and provides an income for life more efficiently than annuity can do. And as I say, more details on this in our video. So the next thing in the Act is a set of new powers for the pensions regulator, covering a number of different areas like information gathering and notifiable events. But there's one particular aspect of these new powers that's, that's really had quite a lot of industry comment, probably more than anything else in the Act, and that's Clause 107. And we have mentioned this before on the podcast, but can you just give us a quick recap of what that's about and where we are on it now? 
Well, Clause 107 is headlined sanctions for avoiding employer debt, etc. Uh, and so what are those sanctions? Well, the maximum penalty is seven years in jail. So this is pretty significant in terms of the penalties that could apply. But as the heading says, this is about avoiding employer debt. And the issue is not the principle of that, but actually the breadth of the individuals that could be caught by the precise wording in the Act and the actions that are in scope as well. In general, any action or inaction that materially worsens the likelihood of accrued DB benefits being paid could be caught. And the only defence uh, against a sanction is that you have a reasonable excuse. But uh, there's no definition of what a reasonable excuse is within the Act. And that is what has got the pensions industry pretty concerned about this clause. The next stage that we can expect is some guidance from the pensions regulator on this. But uh, I should begin by saying it's not for the pensions regulator to decide what is legal and what is illegal. Nevertheless, you would hope that guidance does help to provide a reasonable excuse. So I think it's crucial that the regulator sets out not just what actions clearly should be sanctioned, but equally those kind of regular pensions actions that we all see day in, day out, that clearly are not within the scope of something that needs criminal sanctions. And of course, the risk is if we don't get that clear guidance from the regulator, actually the pensions industry will go into some kind of stagnation because uh, people are uh, concerned about the risks of making decisions and taking actions. Right, okay, so the third thing on my list is dashboards. This has had quite a lot of coverage recently and we know that the pensions dashboard programs recently set out a five-year timeline for their project. I guess the industry just has to be patient while all the details are worked through? Quite right, Ricky. Dashboards are a big development for everybody in the UK with a pension because they hold the prospect of enabling us all to keep track of our various pension savings. Now that sounds easy when you say it quickly, but actually is a lot harder to deliver in practice because there are really big issues over what data is required to go into the dashboard, what figures it will show, and security of data, for example, to name but three things. Another issue that doesn't seem to get talked about very much is the authentication of individuals. So, for example, how can a scheme be sure that the John Smith they know really is the member who's logging in as John Smith? Bearing in mind, as a country, we don't have unique identifiers for every person. This all takes time to work through. So I think we do have to be patient as an industry and allow that work to be done. So next up is a section on long-term targets. And we know most DB schemes will already have long-term targets in place. So what's this part of the Act really trying to achieve? Well, this is quite a big topic, Ricky. So I'm just going to be really brief and keep to some high-level points. Um, it's interesting that long-term targets actually only appears in part five of the Act when it's really a pretty big thing because it introduces the concept of a funding and investment strategy. In other words, a long-term target uh, and will require trustees to monitor progress towards that target. And this is the first time the concept of long-term targets will become 
a legal requirement for DB pension schemes. It also ties in with the pensions regulators consultations on scheme funding because the Act requires that technical provisions will need to be set consistent with the long-term strategy. Now, we'll come in a moment to the investment aspects of this, but let me make one specific comment on funding. And it is this, that the requirement to have a long-term target got quite a lot of pushback in the Lords as the bill was being debated, and it was over open schemes. Effectively, the concern was that requiring even open schemes to have a long-term target could increase funding costs, and that in turn might encourage open schemes to close. And that resulted in a late amendment to the bill that, to my reading at any rate, applies to all schemes, not just open ones. As I see it, it restricts any new funding regulations to recognise the different circumstances of each scheme, such as the employer covenant or the time horizon. In other words, to be scheme specific. Now, why am I calling that out? What's important about it? Well, you might recall that the regulator's first funding consultation introduced the concept of fast track compliance as a simplified route for those schemes that wanted to adopt it. But TPR also said that it would measure any scheme opting for bespoke compliance by reference to fast track. And fast track, therefore, would always be the fundamental measure, even for those trying to comply via the bespoke route. Now, we simply didn't think it was appropriate for those schemes who wanted to go down the bespoke compliance route to be measured against fast track when there were clearly scheme specific circumstances that needed consideration. So putting those two points together, I might be adding two and two and making five here, but it looks to me as though the amendment in the act that I referred to could offer some hope that ultimately bespoke compliance will remain truly bespoke to each scheme, which is really good news. But clearly we need to wait to see what the regulator says in its response to the first consultation. So Ahmed, thanks for being patient and waiting while we get to the investment part. Matthew mentioned there that the requirements cover both funding and investment. What's new here in terms of requirements for long-term investment strategy? That's right. Um, In short, TPR is placing a greater focus on scheme maturity uh, and time horizon, resilience to risk and liquidity, and it wants trustees to align their investment strategy and asset allocation uh, to their scheme's funding strategy. Now, in particular, um, it it wants to ensure that schemes investment strategies have sufficient security, sufficient quality, and that they can satisfy liquidity requirements based on expected cash flows, as well as a reasonable allowance for unexpected cash flows. So so what that means is that by the time uh, they are significantly mature, which the TPR defines uh, as having a a scheme duration of 14 to 12 years, uh, schemes should have investment strategies that have a high resilience to risk, a high level of liquidity, and a high average credit quality. Now, a major concern that has been raised in parliamentary debate is that some schemes, particularly open ones, may be forced to de-risk with potentially serious implications for those schemes. Um, David Fares, Executive Director of uh, Regulatory Policy at TPR, has sought to address some of those concerns by noting that um, under TPR's proposed fast-track approach, an immature open scheme would not be expected to de-risk and would be able to take a long-term approach to investment. However, it would need to have contingency plans in place for getting back on track should things not turn out as hoped. 
um, in the House of Lords. The government has stated that it fully intends to make the DB funding regime scheme specific, and any bespoke approach should build on that foundation. And as well, uh, that it completely agrees that open schemes that are not maturing and have a strong employer covenant should not be forced into an inappropriate de-risking journey. And speaking of risk, that brings us neatly on to the final part of the Act, which is all about climate change risk. So can you tell us a bit about what the Act says on this? Yeah, I certainly can. So Clause 124 of the bill uh, seeks to amend the Pension Schemes Act of 1995 uh, to introduce a climate change risk governance and disclosure element and, and seeking to do that in line with the TCFD. So what is the TCFD? Well, the TCFD stands for the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. It was a task force that was set up in 2015 by the ex-Bank of England Governor Mark Carney in his capacity as the chair of the Financial Stability Board uh, at that time. And effectively, they were given a mandate to establish and disseminate a framework that would allow any organisation to manage uh, its climate-related risks and at the same time uh, give them a framework that would help them capitalise on some of the uh, some of the opportunities that may arise as we transition to a low-carbon economy. So the TCFD did that and in 2017 they uh, they published a report and in that report they, they set out 11 recommended disclosures which they split across four pillars governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. And, and taken together, these 11 disclosures split across those four pillars provide a roadmap for any, any organization to manage their governance and decision-making around climate change. So that's the governance requirement aspect of it through the four pillars. There's also a disclosure element to the TCFD, and that's really there to allow interested parties to pick up an, an organization's TCFD report and be able to get a sense for how that particular organization is managing its climate risk. So what extra requirements are schemes going to have to comply with going forward on this? So the DWP is proposing a, a three-phased approach, uh, and it's effectively doing that through a, an asset threshold test. So in the first phase, which is going to apply to schemes with net assets in excess of $5 billion and authorised master trusts and authorised collective money purchase schemes. So those schemes must have the processes in place to meet on each of the 11 TCFD disclosures uh, from the 1st of October of 2021, so this year. Now, you can think of that 1st of October deadline as a, effectively an on switch. So on that date, those schemes that are in scope must have all the processes in place to meet on the TCFD. Clearly, that doesn't happen overnight. As I've mentioned, it's not a trivial exercise to do so. It can often be a months-long process. And, and so it's really important that trustees, especially if they're in scope for this year, start thinking about how they're going to align their schemes to the TCFD as soon as possible. Because as I say, it can take months to get that right. Now, the second phase then applies to schemes with assets in excess of 1 billion, but less than 5 billion. The, uh, for those schemes, they will have to be in scope from the 1st of October, 2022. Now, I'll just come back to the disclosure requirement. So if you're in scope this year, there is a requirement for you to also publish a TCFD report. And that report will have to cover 1st of October, 2021 to the end of your scheme year. And you have to you have to publish that report seven months after your year end, or 31st of December 2022 if it's uh, if that's earlier. For schemes in the second phase, so uh, in assets in excess of one billion but less than five billion, they will that timeline will be uh, moved back by a year. 
Now, there is also a, um, a, a review uh, which will come. So the DWP is going to reassess or gonna, is going to assess whether uh, schemes with assets less than 1 billion should be in scope uh, from, in, from 2023. So they will, in 2023, the second half of 2023, they will do a review. Uh, they expect to do a consultation in 2024. And they'll, at that point, they will assess whether sub 1 billion pound schemes uh, should be covered by the TCFD as well. So just playing devil's advocate, if I've got a scheme with assets of less than a billion pounds, can I just sort of sit on my hands for the next three or four years and wait and see what happens? I think we should bear in mind that this isn't happening just because the DWP is wanting to make regulation. It's, it's happening because climate change is a significant risk to everyone. It's not a risk that only applies to f five billion pound schemes or one billion pound schemes. It applies to everyone. And so regardless of the your asset size and whether you're in scope this year next year or in the, thereafter i think it's really important to start thinking about climate risk as soon as you can uh, and so just recognizing that it is a risk to everyone and you know the, the climate change doesn't discriminate by asset size and indeed you know many even if you're a sub -billion, 1 billion pound scheme you may have a sponsor that, is, that may be heavily affected or may have may do their own tcfd report or may have some really strong climate targets itself so it's always worth aligning that with your sponsor where possible and indeed if you can looking at this even before there's a statutory deadline for you to do so thanks so just to finish up i'm going to come back to my article from a couple of years ago and i was saying the minister also claimed that this Pensions Act would make pensions legislation by and large complete for some considerable period of time and be followed by a significant period of calm. Matthew, do, do we think that's been borne out in practice or is there still more work to do on some of this? Well, as we've heard, Ricky, the Act covers an awful lot of ground in a number of different key areas. But the one thing it doesn't address is the regulation of DB consolidator vehicles. And the Minister has floated the prospect of a second pension schemes bill to bring that into law. So maybe the change isn't over just yet. <laughs> yeah, I suspected that might be the case. Excellent. Thanks very much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks, Ricky. Thank you. Right, that's everything for today. So thanks for listening. And thanks again to my guests, Ahmed Ali and Matthew Arendt. Matthew and I have been making a few videos recently, and the Collective DC one he mentioned earlier was the very first one we did. So if you want to see us both looking particularly awkward on camera, check out the link in the show notes. I'll be back next month, no doubt with more references to TV shows that are somehow older than some of the people I work with. Probably best not to think too hard about that. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget you can subscribe to the series through all the usual places, including the Apple Podcasts app and Spotify, so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like more information on our retirement solutions, or you want to feature in a future podcast, you can contact me on ricky.marsh at aon.com. Otherwise, please visit our website or email talktous at aon.com. <laughs>